which basically is more yakking, right, Dave? <laughs> right, 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 right. So um, starting a new series of sermons this morning, uh, and this is where we're going to be all summer long. All summer long, I want to dig into this age-old question. Here it is. Is it possible to have too much of a good thing? That's the question. Is it possible to have too much of a good thing? Spoiler alert. All right. Are you ready for this? Spoiler alert. The Bible says yes. There it is. I just ruined the entire summer series. You all can go home now. You don't have to listen to another sermon the whole rest of the summer because I just gave, thank you very little. I just gave you the answer. Is it possible to have too much of a good thing? The Bible actually says yes. Now, obviously, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper on this. I want to tell you where I'm coming from. It was several months ago, Garrett and I were sitting in my office brainstorming about topics for upcoming sermons. And he actually is the one that had the idea. As the lead pastor, it was my prerogative to steal it and take it and use it and give him none of the credit, which I'm fully prepared to do. Um, We're talking about some of the obstacles we see, common obstacles that we see in the discipleship process. Discipleship, following Jesus, growing in our faith. You know, it's, it's, it's a journey. And what are some of the things that create obstacles in the journey? And he brought up, you know, sometimes I see people who have good ideas, but they take them too far. They go to excess. They go to extreme. And we started kind of riffing on that idea. What are some of these things? What are some of these things that happen? There are things that we do where we take something good. We take something healthy to an unhealthy or unhelpful extreme. And one of the things that Garrett and I recognized that day is that a lot of these things have to do with topics that we're kind of preconditioned to say, well, that's good. You can't have too much of that. But we look into it and go, well, actually, you kind of can have too much of that. As we were talking about that, I then began kind of looking at scripture, kind of reading through the word, trying to find what would be a good anchor point to talk about these kinds of topics. And I landed in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 16, which is the verse that appears in very tiny print at the bottom of the title screen in front of you. Proverbs 25, 16, the New Living Translation says it this way. Do you like honey? Well, don't eat too much or it'll make you sick. I love that. Do you like honey? And everybody's like, of course I like honey. What's the best Cheerio? It's the honey nut Cheerio. You can keep your plain Cheerios, the apple cinnamon, all right, but it's clearly the honey nut Cheerio. Everybody loves honey. Do you love honey? I love honey. Well, the Bible says don't eat too much honey or it will make you sick. I chose the New Living Translation because the NIV, which I tend to use more often, actually says don't eat too much or you'll vomit. And I felt like having vomit on the screen all summer long was not the direction I wanted to go in. So we're going to soften a little, little bit and just say, don't eat too much honey or it will make you sick. Well, I thought that's the scripture that was going to be our, our, our bouncing off point for, for every week this summer. We're going to talk about eating too much honey. I was having that conversation with Joe Wagner over here, who is kind of a, an armchair graphic artist. And Joe said, hey, could I, could I throw together a, a graphic, you know, for this sermon series for you? Could I, could I work on that? I said, Joe, that would be great. Here's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing like a rich honeycomb with just like the honey dripping and oozing off of it. We're going to call it the sweet spot. We're talking about honey. It tastes so good, but we need to be right in the sweet spot. Not too little, but not too much. Could you put, you know, something real nature-y and woodsy? Could you put that together? And Joe said, I'm on it. 
And he did. He sent me a graphic that looks just like that, and I'd be happy to show it to you some other time. But he also, it's kind of a joke, I think, sent me a picture of Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> and I saw it, and I thought, oh my goodness, that's what we need to look at all summer. We need to have more Winnie the Pooh in this church. Amen? We need to have more Winnie the Pooh in church. How many of us were raised on Pooh Bear? If you are familiar with Pooh Bear and his buddies from the Hundred Acre Wood, you know the story that's being referenced right on that screen, right? One day, Winnie the Pooh goes to his friend Rabbit's house, and he crawls in through the hole that is the front door of Rabbit's house, and he is invited to stay for lunch, but Pooh Bear being Pooh Bear overstays his welcome. He stays all afternoon, and the whole time he's there, he's eating Rabbit's honey. Rabbit is a good host, so he says, can I get you some honey? And Pooh Bear says, oh, I'd love some honey. And he eats the honey, but he keeps on having more and more and more and more of it, overstays his welcome, and by the end of the afternoon, he has eaten every bit of honey in Rabbit's house. Now, as a child, it never occurred to me to ask why a rabbit would have honey in his house, but that's a whole other issue. When the afternoon is over and the honey is gone, Pooh Bear decides it's time to leave, and so he gets up from Rabbit's house and tries to leave the way he came through the front door, but he discovers that he has eaten so much honey that he is now too fat to get out of the hole, and he gets himself stuck. So he struggles and struggles and struggles and struggles, so much so that not only can he not get out of the hole, he now cannot back his way back into the house either. And there he is, just like this, stuck in the rabbit hole. So of course, Christopher Robin and all of the other creatures in the Hundred Acre Wood come to try and rescue him, and they push and they pull and they push and they pull, and they try and get Pooh Bear out of the hole in Rabbit's house, and they can't. And so the only solution is poor old Winnie the Pooh has to sit there for days and days and days and days. I wonder what happened on the inside of Rabbit's house during that. <laughs> but he has to just stay there until he's finally skinny enough that they can all give him a good yank and he pops out of the hole. If you know the story, he flies through the air and ends up in a tree where bees have built a big nest full of honey and he starts eating all again. Honey is good, do you like honey? It's sweet, but don't have too much or you're gonna get sick or if you're a fluffy little cubby all stuffed with fluff, you might just get stuck in your friend's front door. It's the sweet spot. We have to know how much is the right amount. I believe the Bible gives us many examples of good things that can harm us if we consume too much of them. And so that's what we're going to talk about this summer. There's a lot of sweet honey in the world, but eating too much of it will make us sick. And today, I want to talk about joy. Joy is a good thing. Joy is a wonderful thing. And the Bible talks about the importance of joy again and again and again. Consider these verses here. Proverbs 17, 22 says, A cheerful heart is good medicine. If you've been a part of this congregation more than 10 years, you, like me, probably associate this verse with our former pastor, Pastor West. He used to start almost every sermon by telling the most awful jokes I had ever heard in my life until I met Jim Cahill. <laughs> 
But Pastor Joe would tell his terrible jokes and then he would quote this verse, wouldn't he? He would go, oh, a cheerful heart, you know, a merry heart. And he would say it in in the King James. A cheerful heart is good medicine. Galatians chapter 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit. It lists all these qualities that are the product of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And very near the top of that list, it says the fruit of the Spirit is joy. When the Holy Spirit is in your life, he's going to produce joy. We talked about the the rebuilders. That was a couple series back. Remember when we had the picture of Zechariah and Zerubbabel and Joshua and Nehemiah and and the boys. Part of Nehemiah's story is this very, very quotable quote where he tells the rebuilders, hey guys, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's a good thing, isn't it? And maybe most to the point is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, which just very simply says this, be joyful always. Just be joyful always. This is what the Bible says to us about joy. So without question, joy should be a hallmark of life in Christ. But I guess the question is, how literally are we supposed to take this? I mean, when 1 Thessalonians says be joyful always, how precise and legalistic are we supposed to be about that word always? Just what exactly does always mean, right? How precise are we supposed to be about that? Is there such a thing as too much joy? Is there such a thing as too much joy? Now, I want to just very quickly acknowledge, some of you are probably onto this. You've heard it said that joy and happiness are not necessarily the same thing. Happiness is is an emotion and it's fleeting, it's transient, it comes and goes. But joy is more of a foundational attitude. I've heard that said before, and in general, I, I, I resonate with that, I agree with that. With that definition, you might say, well, pastor, it's possible to have a foundation of joy in your life, even in a time of sadness. Okay. Okay, I'm with you. I just don't think for our purposes, it's terribly helpful to get caught up in kind of the nuance of that conversation. It's actually worth noting that in the Bible, in the ancient texts, the ancient Hebrew in the Old Testament, and the ancient Greek in the New Testament, that whole difference between happiness and joy actually isn't a thing. There are several words in the ancient languages that can be translated into joy or happiness. And when you read in your English Bible, they tend to get used pretty indiscriminately. The ancient writers of scriptures didn't differentiate between happiness and joy. The way we sometimes, and I think appropriately, say, well, there is a little bit of difference. When you read the word happy in your Bible, when you read the word joy in your Bible, those very well could be the exact same ancient word. We get lost on an unnecessary rabbit trail if we try and split hairs on that too much, biblically speaking. So I'm not going to worry about that. We're not going to get caught in the weeds of, well, are we really talking about joy here? Are we really talking about happiness? We're just going to talk about this expression. Let's just, for our purposes, take the word joy at face value. Okay. This weekend was a busy one for me. I officiated two funerals, one on Friday evening and one on Saturday morning. Here's what I mean by face value. Two funerals, go to the funeral, care for the grieving people. I did that weird thing that we do at funerals. How are you doing? I mean, like, what, 
how are you doing? <laughs> like, you ever wonder, like, what a ridiculous question that is at a funeral? But we do it. You know, how are you doing? And people gave me all sorts of answers to that. Not once did anybody say to me this weekend, I am just so joyful, right? That's not how we emote in times of sadness. Now, that doesn't mean that those people didn't have a foundational understanding of joy in their life and it was a good you know, anchor point in their souls. No, they were grieving people and they were saying, I'm sad. I'm sad. That's all we're talking about today. That's all we're talking about. My point is this. Maybe there are circumstances, maybe just maybe, there are circumstances where our desire to experience and exhibit joy could actually be the wrong response. Maybe there is such a thing as too much joy. As a matter of fact, I believe the Bible says exactly that. I came up with three circumstances in which the Bible tells us that we should keep our joy in check. Keep your joy in check. Joy is a good thing. But sometimes it's just not the attitude that's called for in the moment. For instance, the Bible shows us that we should temper our joy in times of grief. We should temper our joy in times of grief. If you don't remember anything else I say today, you're going to remember this. Sometimes life stinks. Do I hear an amen on that? <laughs> Sometimes life stinks. It's okay to say that. It's okay to say that. Sometimes life stinks. For some reason, there is a perception in the world that good Christians never let anything get them down. There's this perception that to be a good follower of Jesus, we need to grin like fools all the way through life. We need to have just pigtails like Pollyanna and go through life saying how everything is perfect. We say, Jesus wants you to turn that frown upside down. Come on now. Sometimes life stinks. This is going to sound like a joke. I don't mean it to be one of the most influential characters in how the world looks at evangelical Christianity over the course of the last generation has been Ned Flanders on The Simpsons. Homer Simpson's next door neighbor, Ned, is a Christian. And the joke about Ned is that no matter what happens, Ned's just always got a smile on his face. Hi, Leo, neighbor, how you doing there? He smiles like a fool in the most ridiculous of circumstances. That's the perception that many have of what it means to be a Christian. Folks, that dog won't hunt. That was not in my notes. <laughs> Here's what my notes do say. If we can't experience and express grief, then we are not doing a very good job of living like Jesus. If we can't experience and express grief, we are not doing a good job of living like Jesus. Some of you will know the answer to the trivia question, what's the shortest verse in the entire Bible? John eleven thirty five. 35, I already heard somebody say it, say it louder. Jesus wept. There it is, two words, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, famous pretty much only for that reason, Jesus wept. He wept. Did we know that Jesus wept? Bible actually gives us more details. He didn't weep just once. He wasn't just having a bad day. It was actually a relatively common experience to see Jesus express grief. Luke chapter 19, 41 records that as Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem, he sees the city and he weeps over the city. Jesus was, was known 
to express grief and to emotion. Now, I have no doubt that Jesus was a joyful person. A lot of the things that Jesus says in the Gospels are witty. And some of them are downright funny. And on a few occasions, he experiences what I believe to be the greatest spiritual gift of all, the gift of sarcasm. Jesus is a funny guy. He's a funny guy. And you read what he says, you find that people clearly liked being around Jesus. He got invited to a lot of parties. And as a matter of fact, the complaint registered most often against Jesus by the religious folks was, dude, you have too much fun, right? He was a fun guy. He was a fun guy. But I think it's worth noting that never once does the Bible record that Jesus laughed. I believe he laughed. Personally, I believe he laughed a lot, but the Bible never says he laughed. It doesn't once refer to Jesus smiling. It never once says that, and behold, the Lord said unto them, cheer up. It doesn't say that. But there are multiple references in the gospel to Jesus crying. There were things that grieved Jesus, and when he grieved, he wept. He didn't look joyful. The prophet Isaiah said of him prophetically, he was a man of suffering, familiar with pain. So it shouldn't surprise us that among Jesus' very first recorded words in the entire Bible is a blessing for people who have lost sight of joy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. See, Jesus gets it. He gets the fact that sometimes joy just isn't the appropriate response to life. And there's no need for his followers to pretend otherwise. So I believe it's not just appropriate. I believe it's actually godly. It's actually Christ-like to acknowledge that there are moments in this life when a joyful response would be a dishonest response. Sometimes life stinks, right? Sometimes life stinks. We all know it. The Bible knows it. Jesus knows it. And in those moments, God is not expecting or requiring that we should force ourselves to express joy. So we should most definitely temper our joy in times of grief. But in addition to that, I believe we should temper our joy when we're with grieving people. When we are with grieving people, we should temper our joy. You know what most of us want to do when we're with grieving people? Most of us want to fix it. Most of us want to get the grieving over with. Most of us want to do something to make it go away. We have an aversion to grief. We don't like it in ourselves and we feel uncomfortable when we see it in other people. We want to get rid of grief as fast as we can. But it's important for us to acknowledge today that that is not what the Bible tells us to do. I referenced in your notes, Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. It does not say rejoice with those who rejoice and rejoice even harder with sad people because we got to get them to suck it up and stop killing our buzz, right? But that's how most of us act. That's how we want to act most of the time when we encounter grieving people. Like, ooh, they're kind of down. I'm going to be even sillier and try and get them to cheer up and be happy. In other words, what the Bible is telling us, when you encounter a grieving person, your first response needs to be holster your joy. 
right? Put your weapon down, Christian. Holster your joy. And instead, meet them in their grief. Meet them in their grief. The Bible tells us we need to bear one another's burdens. It doesn't say ignore one another's burdens. It doesn't say pretend that other guy's burdens aren't there. It doesn't say if you find a burdened person, try and cheer them up and maybe they'll stop noticing their burden. It doesn't say any of those things. It says if you find a burdened person, help them bear that burden. Help them bear that burden. Mourn with the mourners and grieve with the grief stricken. Here's the verse I really wanted to highlight again. It comes from Proverbs chapter 25, verse 20. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day. In other words, like the guy who steals your coat on a winter day. Don't like him. Or like vinegar poured on a wound. I've actually never had that experience, but it sounds bad. Like that is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Person who comes on in and says, oh, come on, cheer up. Get over, turn that frown upside down. Bible says, yeah, that's like the guy trying to steal your coat on a winter day. I said, I've never had vinegar poured on a wound. It occurred to me, though, I have tried to eat buffalo wings when I have a cut on my lip. Not pleasant. Yeah, yeah, not pleasant. Worth it, but not pleasant. That's the person who sings songs to a heavy heart. Come on, chin up. It's not that bad. I'm here to cheer you up. Sometimes words like that can be precisely the wrong thing to say to a hurting person. Recall, we said it a few moments ago, John chapter 11, verse 35, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, Jesus wept. Why? Why did he weep? What was the context? What was going on there? I'm going to tell you the story really quickly. Jesus wept because he was going to a funeral. He was going to the funeral of his friend, good friend of his, not one of the 12 disciples, but a good friend of his, a man by the name of Lazarus. He was going to the funeral of Lazarus. Let me just read two verses here, backing up from the short one. In John chapter 11, verse 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping. Now the her there is Mary, Lazarus's sister, also a good friend of Jesus. He had a lot of friends named Mary. But this was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. He shows up at the family household and finds Mary weeping, grieving. Her brother's been dead several days, but she is still mourning his passing. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews, in other words, the folks from the neighborhood, who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And Jesus wept. Why did he cry? Jesus wept when he encountered weeping people. You see, it doesn't make sense to say, well, he, he, he was sad because it was a funeral, right? When you and I cry at funerals, it's because the person that's gone, we're not going to get to see again. Jesus was going to this funeral. He knew it. Mary didn't know it, but he knew it. He was going to this funeral to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, as he arrives, knows that in just a couple of minutes, he's going to be helping Lazarus get out of his grave clothes. So to say Jesus cried because he was sad that his friend was gone doesn't make any sense. To say Jesus cried because he was going to a funeral and funerals are sad places doesn't make any sense unless we recognize that Jesus cried because he was with grieving people. Mourn with those who mourn. Grieve with the grief stricken. 
Jesus didn't miss Lazarus. Or at least he knew he wasn't going to have to miss Lazarus for very long. But his heart was broken when he saw his, when he saw his friend Mary grieving. His heart was broken when he saw the neighbors and the friends and the family and the community there still, still grieving because this man had been cut down, cut down in the thick of his life. Jesus' heart was broken. He grieved with grieving people. Even though he had come to perform a miracle that he knew was going to bring them overwhelming joy. Even though. Even though he knew that he would be able to replace their sadness with joy. He still didn't start with joy. He started with weeping. Jesus wouldn't dare sing songs to those heavy hearts. And neither should we. One last situation. One last situation deserves some consideration today. We should temper our joy when God is grieving. Right? We should temper our joy in times of our own grief. We should temper our joy when we're with grieving people. And we should temper our joy when God is grieving. And I wonder if that thought is a little bit eyebrow-raising. Is it a little provocative to say that? Is it a little bit new to some of us? Does God grieve? Like, that doesn't sound like a very, you know, mighty conqueror God kind of a thing. But does God grieve? And if so, when is he grieving? Let me ask you this. Parents, moms and dads in the room, real talk. You don't have to raise your hand. Mom, please don't raise your hand. <laughs> How many of you have ever wept over your children? Come on, Kim. I said, don't raise your hand. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody raise their hands. All the parents in the room raise their oh, There it is, real talk right now. How many of us have wept over our children, right? And when do we weep over our children? We weep over our children when we recognize that our kids are making decisions that are going to hurt them. We weep over our children when we see that they're making choices that are going to be harmful to them. We grieve when we see our kids go through situations like that. We don't feel joyful about it. Moms, dads, can I get a hearty amen? Praise the Lord, I'm just so full of happiness, my kid is really going off the rails. We don't feel joy about that. We grieve when that happens. If us, then how much more a perfect, loving, heavenly Father? Shouldn't we expect God to do the same? That's exactly what the Bible says. The Old Testament is actually filled with stories about the Father's tears. This is not metaphorical. This is not me making some sort of inference. This is not me trying to paint the Father like a human being. I'm not saying it's like this. I'm telling you, the Bible says he cries tears. Plain and simple. The Bible says he cries tears. Especially as we read through the Old Testament, we, we see these stories because typically it was the role, it was the job of the prophets to tell the people, hey, you all should probably holster your joy for a little while. It's not appropriate that you should be celebrating while God is crying. That was the role of the prophets. Amos. Amos reprimanded the people of Israel, specifically the middle and upper classes, because they were known to go on having their parties while the lower class was being oppressed. And God had said again and again and again, that grieves me. And on his behalf, Amos actually called them. He, you know, I, I'm sorry, this is going to sound a little offensive here. He called out the ladies of the upper class in particular. And Amos in chapter 4 says to them, you bunch of fat cows. 
he actually says that, you bunch of fat cows, you kept on partying even though you knew how upset I was. Thus saith the Lord. It was Amos. It wasn't me, okay? It wasn't me. It was Amos. Jeremiah, his nickname is the, the weeping prophet or the grieving prophet, right? But read through Jeremiah's word. You find out, yeah, Jeremiah is prone to shed a tear or two, but he doesn't cry nearly as much as God cries. <laughs> he doesn't cry nearly as much as God's crying in, in his prophecy. In Jeremiah chapter 9, Jeremiah is trying to talk to the people of Jerusalem, saying, you guys don't get it. Your destruction is coming. It's imminent. It's here. And God is weeping about that. And he says, God is, is actually like at this point where God wants to hide. God has cried so much, he wants to outsource his crying. God's ready to hire professional mourners to come in and cry with him because y'all don't seem to care. He says in Jeremiah chapter 19, 9, verse 17, this is what the Lord Almighty says, consider now, call for the wailing women to come, send for the most skillful of them, let them come quickly and wail over us. This is God talking over us till our eyes overflow with tears and water streams from our eyelids. Does God cry? You better believe he cries. Sin grieves the Father, and it ought to grieve us as well. You're looking for something a little bit more direct than kind of vague references from the Old Testament prophets? Turn to the New Testament. James chapter 4, speaking really the, exactly same, the exact same thing. Followers of God who are washed in their sin and they don't seem to give a rip. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Grieve, mourn, and wail. That's the command. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, this is James. This is the same guy that opens his book with, consider it pure joy when you face trials of all sorts. That's what James said. So, James, let me get this straight here. When I'm going through trials, when I'm going through difficulty, when I'm going to be oppressed, I'm supposed to be joyful then. But if I'm having a good time ignoring the Lord, you're telling me to grieve, mourn, and wail. And James says, guys, that's it. We need to temper our joy when God grieves. We need to temper our joy when God grieves. There is a problem with I'm going to call it this, pop culture Christianity. And here's what I mean by this. This Christianity that we, we see around us. Christianity that's really just based on, on, on quotable quotes. On, it, you know, it kind of sounds a little bit like, like, like Oprah and Joel Osteen had coffee together. You know, self-help psychology and, and, and preachers who just want us to feel better about ourselves so that we can be better people with bigger smiles. That's pop culture Christianity. Not that it bothers me at all. <laughs> Remember when I said sarcasm was the greatest spiritual gift? Here's the problem with all of that. We've cheapened sin. We've cheapened it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is famous for using the phrase uh, cheap grace. Kind of the same thing, right? We've cheapened sin. Sin doesn't cost anything anybody anymore. We've cheapened sin. We have ignored the depths to which sin grieves the Father. And we have pretended like the goal of life and the goal of relationship with Jesus is to be happy and to be content 
as much as possible. And I hear it all the time. I hear people, you know, in the midst of a situation, like wrestling with a decision they need to make. I hear people say this all the time. Well, I think God would just want me to be happy. And I'm like, let's talk about that together, brother. But inside it's more of that, you know, I think God would want me to be happy. Let's just be honest, folks. I'm not telling you God wants you to be sad, but let's not lead with that. Let's not lead with that. I just think God would just want me, Jesus would just want me to be happy. Where in the Bible does it say that's Jesus' number one concern? I don't think that's a very good starting point. I just don't. I think God would want me to be happy. Not necessarily the case. And here's why. I'm going to give you a why, because I know this is a tough one. I'm going to give you a reason. Okay, don't worry. Stay with me here. There's a reason. Not necessarily the case. There is a godly purpose to sorrow. There is a benefit to setting joy aside, if only for a moment or two, in order to honestly deal with the issues that God is bringing before us. Look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. No regret. Like, I was ready for that verse to be over when it said leads to salvation, right? Like, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. I was ready for that verse to be over. I was like, okay, cool. Good, 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 good. And then the Holy Spirit was like, and here's the kicker. No regrets. No regrets. No regrets. You know what this says about heaven? It doesn't say, oh, nobody cries there because crying stinks. No, it says he's going to wipe every tear away from your eye. Well, folks... Do the logic. God has some tears in your eyes if he's going to wipe them away, right? But no regrets. No regrets. You're destined for a better place. You're destined for a truer and more real existence. Godly sorrow has a purpose. Joy is a good thing. Joy is a beautiful thing. And as followers of Christ, like, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. We ought to be known for our joy. 100%. We ought to be known for our joy. Joy really does strengthen us, doesn't it? Joy empowers us to live as Christ created us to live. The author of Hebrews says about Jesus, despite all of that man of sorrow stuff, despite all of that Jesus wept stuff, you know what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus? He says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. That's the power of joy. That's what joy can do in your life. I am not anti-joy. It's a good thing. And it can empower us to do great things. But godly sorrow has a purpose too. And here's the deal. Think about your story, whatever it might be. hundred different stories in this room right now. But if you know Jesus is your savior, none of us in this room got saved because we were just too happy in our old way of life, right? None of us got saved because we were just too overwhelmingly happy and content with our old way of life. No, just like that verse says, there was sorrow. And that sorrow moved us to repentance. Repentance, remember, is where we changed, we turned, we were different. Sorrow moved us to repentance, and that is what brought upon our salvation. And the Spirit says, and you can't regret that. 
You can't regret that. You can't say, oh, I wish I had never been sorrowful. I wish I'd only ever known joy. No, 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 no. I'm glad that I was broken. Amen. Would somebody say amen to that testimony, please? Yes, I'm glad that I was broken. I'm glad that I was broken. I'm loving that word right now. I'm glad that I was broken because God used that in my life. Godly sorrow played a role in my life. And if I had just gone through life trying to pretend that my job as a good follower of Jesus would be to smile more, I would have missed out. I would have missed out on all that God had for me. Now look, my intent today certainly isn't to make you less joyful. Like, HRCC, could we just ratchet down the happiness a little bit? It's kind of getting ridiculous. Clearly not my intent here. And I'm also not trying to make you feel guilty about having fun or smiling once a while. Ah, what a great day. Oh, pastor said we shouldn't. You know, like, like that's, that's not where we're going with this. Because here's what's true. The joy of the Lord is your strength. There's a verse worth remembering and standing upon, right? The joy of the Lord really is your strength. And the product of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life really is joy. You cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit and not have joy ooze out of your ears every once in a while. Or maybe even more often than that. Those things are true. They really, really, really are true. But they aren't alone in their truth. They are not alone in their truth. Equally true, Jesus is not requiring you to fake it. He's not requiring you to fake joyfulness because you think you should in times of grief. He doesn't ask you to do that. Equally true, there are times when Jesus is actually inviting you to grieve with others or even to grieve with him. And who are we to ignore that invitation? Those times are important experiences in a life marked for salvation. Ignoring them and filling up only on joy, it's going to make us sick. And we need to not do it. Let's pray. Father, we receive all that you have for us today. And we rejoice as a people that knows what it is to taste of that sweet, sweet honey we call joy. I thank you now for the joyfulness expressed in this room. I thank you for the many ways in which, in spirit, I just ask you to bring to mind in each individual in this room right now, moments of joyfulness for which we give thanks. We thank you for the joy that you have poured out over us, your people. We thank you that even now as we gather, your word says you are rejoicing over us. We thank you that joy is central to your very nature and therefore it's central to our very nature. But Lord, help us to be a discerning people. Help us to recognize that it is not every second of every hour of every day that you require us to be silly, to be happy, or to be joyful. Help us to recognize, Lord, that godly sorrow plays a purpose in our lives. And that sometimes life stinks. And grief and sorrow and mourning are exactly what we need to express and experience in those moments. 
Lord, I pray for the people of HRCC, just in particular for this group, that you would make us sensitive counselors to each other. That as we interact with each other and encourage one another in times of grief, Lord, you would help us to bear one another's burdens. That you would never cause us to make each other feel second class because of grief. That never we would say one to another, oh, come on, just get over it. But rather, Lord, that we would join one another in grief and then allow you, Spirit, to do your work and to produce your fruit. Father, I pray that you would quicken our hearts to see that in this world which grieves you. There's a song that we sing sometimes, one of the words of which says, or one of the lines of which says, break my heart for what breaks yours. And God, we have to be so discerning about that. We don't want to be a people that are brokenhearted about the wrong things. And we sure don't want to be a people that are never brokenhearted about anything. We want to be a people that are brokenhearted about what breaks your heart. Lord, make us sensitive to that. That's the work of your spirit within us. For only he knows the mind of Christ. And so I pray, Lord, we pray together, one for another today, as we support and uplift each other. Fill our bellies with the sweet, sweet honey of your joy. But help us to know when to put it aside for a moment lest we become sick. Help us to know when too much of a good thing is not helpful for us. Help us to know how we should then be. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would do his work in our midst. We ask these things in the loving name of our Savior, Jesus. And everybody says, amen. Amen. Have a great week. Bring your kids out to Terrific Tuesday this week. We will see you next Sunday.